Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. You'll find a Bible uh, in front of you or perhaps on the window ledge. And we are reading Philippians chapter 3, page 981 in the church Bible or 1166 in the large print version. And we're going to read in today from, I think, verse 7 of chapter 3. This is the final section in the large central section in Paul's letter to the Philippians in which he is urging them to stand fast together as Christian believers and as a church family. And we noticed last time that he uses that expression in chapter 1 verse 27, and then he bookends the section in chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved. And he's concerned uh, about two threats to the Philippian church. And the Lord Jesus taught that when he built the church, it would be built in enemy-occupied territory, and it frequently would be under attack. And the two attacks on the church in Philippi are one emerging from within. Uh, Paul is concerned that there may be pride that produces fragmentation and disunity, and he has dealt with that really in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, he's concerned about an attack that comes from outside, an attack of false teaching in which Uh, There is obviously a group of people who, if I can use the language Paul uses in verse 2, had actually dogged Paul's own footsteps. Many places he had preached the gospel and planted churches. This group of people or groups of people had sought to divert these churches from the teaching that Paul had given them about the gospel. They were people with a Jewish background, and they insisted that if you were really going to belong to God's covenant people in Christ, it was essential that you should be circumcised, essential that you should be circumcised. Paul's concern in this chapter is that whenever anyone insists on adding something to the perfection of Christ's work, they actually diminish and will ultimately destroy Christ's work. It's simple logic. If Christ is all we need, if someone insists there is something else that we need, they are denying that Christ is all that we need. And as we noticed last time, it seems God had equipped Saul of Tarsus in a very special way to deal with this false teaching because this was where he had been. He had insisted at one time in his life that if you are not circumcised, 
you were damned. Circumcision was that important. And then he had been brought to faith in Christ. And he deals with this in part by giving his own testimony. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I want to begin with a question. It was a question that these Judaizers, this circumcision party, as they're sometimes called, it was a question that they frequently asked about Paul's teaching in a kind of finger-jabbing way. And the question is this, if our justification, if our right standing before God does not depend on anything that we do, if it does not depend on obedience to God's law, if it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and is absolutely free without us making any contribution to it whatsoever, 
if the most mature and obedient Christian in the room is no more justified than the newest and least mature Christian in the room, if salvation, justification, is that kind of free gift, then does it not follow? And you find this a question that Paul answers in various places in his letters. Does it not follow that if that is true, the Christian can live any way he or she wants to, and they will be saved because their justification cannot be destroyed. And that question, I think, lingers in the background here. I remember when I was a teenager learning, I'm not sure anyone taught it to me. If they did, they shouldn't have. Learning this little ditty, free from the law, O blessed condition, I'm justified. I can sin as I please and still have remission. Isn't that the logic of the gospel? If you contribute nothing to your salvation, if it's given to you freely, then doesn't that imply that from that point onwards you can go and live any way you please? Interestingly, just as a sidebar, that's not only what Paul was accused of teaching, that's what the reformers in uh, the, the 16th century and into the 17th century were accused of teaching. If you give salvation as freely as that, then, well, of course, it's human nature to say, I'll take it, I've got it, nothing is going to destroy it, and therefore, I can live any way I please. It's very interesting that in several of his letters, Paul has to deal with this. In Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. And he actually deals with it here too in what is really a very powerful way. And it's what he says here I want to focus on with you. If you are justified in Christ, notice the language he'd used in verse 9, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness that I've created myself by obedience to the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, this righteousness that depends on faith, does that mean I will go on to live any way I want? And to summarize the point that Paul makes in these verses, I think we can say this, justification, our right standing with God, is always, without exception, accompanied by transformation of life. Justification that's given to us freely is always accompanied by transformation of life. We are never justified on the basis of that transformation. You are not justified on the basis that you have been born again. You're justified exclusively on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for you. But when you are found in Christ and justified, 
that union with Christ always accompanies our justification with transformation or sanctification. Remember how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, in Christ Jesus, we have not only justification, but sanctification. When we come into fellowship with Jesus Christ, the language Paul uses here makes it clear. We come to Him not only as the one who saves us and justifies us, but the one who becomes our Lord and transforms us, as the French Genevan reformer John Calvin puts it, you cannot separate sanctification from justification in your life because Jesus Christ was given to you to effect both in your life. And that's the theme that runs through these verses in the second half of Philippians chapter 3. I want to walk us through them uh, quickly to see two main things. The first is the nature of the transformation that takes place when we are found in Christ, and the second is the essence of the transformation that takes place in Christ. The nature of the transformation that takes place in Christ. I think we can say that Paul says five things here. I'm going to deal with them very quickly. You'll need to preach the sermon that ought to be preached on these five things to yourself later on. But there are five dimensions, five kinds of transformation that took place in Paul's life and correspondingly take place in the lives of all those who truly come to faith in Jesus Christ. The first is the transformation of our values in verses 7 and 8. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things. And you, you can't help noting the drumbeat. Everything I had amassed in order to effect my own justification, he says, now I have a totally different value system. And I see these things not just as belonging to a kind of neutrality, but actually as a loss. I've transferred them from what I thought they were. I thought they belonged to the gain column that what I did was, was contributing to my right standing before God, and now what I actually see is that whole way of thinking was destroying any possibility of a right standing before God, and I count them as loss. Indeed, he says, I not only count everything as loss, but for the sake of Jesus Christ, I've lost everything. And he may well be speaking the literal truth there, as has happened in the 21st century. So, in the first century, if, if a Jew became a Christian, then the, the, the family, in all likelihood, would disinherit them. They had excommunicated themselves, and they would be disinherited. 
so that Saul of Tarsus gave up everything for Christ, not because that was an act of virtue, but you see, he had realized that he couldn't be holding these treasures of his own accomplishment and his own pedigree in his hand and simultaneously holding on to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as his Lord. And it's interesting, I think virtually everywhere else that Paul refers to Jesus as Lord, as kurios, he's actually talking about his deity. Kurios was the was the, the, the noun that was used in Paul's Greek translation of the Old Testament to translate the divine name Yahweh. So, when he speaks about Jesus as Lord, he doesn't usually mean Jesus is my Lord. He means Jesus is the Lord, God and Lord. But when he speaks here, he does mean Jesus is his Lord. He does mean that in finding Jesus Christ, he has not only discovered one who is his Savior and who brings him justification, but one who is his master and therefore begins to effect sanctification in his life. That's a very important principle, isn't it? Unless we see the greatness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and reach out to Him, then trying to let go of everything that sticks to our hands like superglue in self-justification is going to remain there. But when we grasp Christ, when we are found in Christ, then the effect of that is to dissolve the superglue that we have attached to our own righteousness and to find our righteousness only in Jesus Christ. So, there is a transformation of His values. Then in verses 10 and 11, there's a transformation of His ambition. Look at what He says, I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection and share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead. You, you see what he's saying? He's saying, when you take hold of Jesus Christ, your ambition changes, and now you want your life to be reshaped, and the way in which you want your life to be reshaped is according to the image of Jesus. And this is a most extraordinary statement. No one, I think, but a genuine Christian could make a statement like this. I want to share in Christ's sufferings in order that I may become like Him in His death. And I want to become like Him in His death so that I may share in the power of His resurrection. And you see what he's saying. He's saying, I understand that when I embrace Jesus Christ, something something happens to me. If I can put it this way, because it's been in the news again, the individual believer becomes like a Turin shroud. And the marks of the pattern of life that God employed in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, those begin to be embedded in us. 
It's not our choice. We don't know to what extent or in what way that is going to take place, but what we do know is that when we are found in Christ, we are going to be reshaped and remolded. Uh, a bit like those um, plaster of Paris molds that some of us had in ye old days when that was what you got for Christmas. And you took all this gooey stuff and you, you put it, this amorphous mass of plaster of Paris that you poured into the mold that you held upside down in a jam jar. And then when it set and the mold came off, then if it worked, there was the transformation of the amorphous mass into the shape of the animal or the person in the mold. That's what happens in the Christian life. And, and this is so important for Paul. He speaks about this kind of thing again and again and again and again, that if we are united to Christ in His death and resurrection, then our lives will begin to be reshaped in that kind of pattern. We don't determine the way it will work out, but you see, this is part of the, of the genius of his new ambition, that he, he saw that this was the pattern of fruitfulness in Jesus' life. It was because of his willingness to give himself over to death with a view to resurrection that his life bore fruit in Paul's life. And he understands that exactly the same thing is going to be true of his life. And that's a radically different ambition. And then you'll notice as he goes on, he has something else to say that I think is really important for us to notice in verses 12 to 16, that there is a further transformation of his focus. He says, I haven't already obtained this. this. This hasn't been worked out fully in my life. I've not yet got to the point of the resurrection from the dead. But he says, I'm pressing on to make it my own. I don't consider I've yet fully experienced this, but one thing I do, or in the word I've used, this is my ambition, that forgetting what lies behind, I may press on towards the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, this word's one thing I do I want us to focus on. Because frankly, if I were in the room when he was probably dictating this, Timothy, it looks almost certainly from the beginning of letters in the room when he's dictating this, maybe Timothy is even writing it down or taking it down in shorthand so he can write it out more fully in I think I'd be sitting there, <clears throat> and as Paul looked up, did I hear someone in the room cough? If I were Timothy, I'd be very tempted to say, do you really want me to write that down? You do one thing. I've never seen you do only one thing. In fact, is it not true? that in some of your earlier letters, you gave whole lists of what you did. You were always praying. You were always preaching. You were always traveling. You were always suffering. Paul, you have never, since the moment you became a Christian, or at least since shortly afterwards when you received your sight and 
began your Christian pilgrimage, there is not a day in your life has passed when you did only one thing. But you see, he's found a, a kind of secret here, hasn't he? Because I think if Timothy said to him, Paul, you're always doing a hundred things, I think on the basis of these words, Paul would say, Timothy, you've not got it yet. I'm not doing a hundred things. I'm doing one thing in a hundred different ways. One thing in a hundred different ways. And you know, that that insight of Paul's, that experience of Paul's, that in a way lies at the heart of his life transformation, is surely one of the most important principles that we need to learn as Christians. And the, the sooner we learn it, the better. The younger we learn it, the better. In the midst of everything and all the demands that are on us, that can stretch us in every which way, what creates stability and drive in our lives is the transformation of our focus from all the different things we need to do to the one thing we want to do in all the different things we do. And that is in every situation, in relation to every person, faced with every trial, looking to every possibility in the future. The driving ambition of our lives is that in this, I want to know Christ, and I want to serve Christ. So, this transformation is very deep. It's a transformation of his values. It's a transformation of his ambition. It's a transformation of his focus. And it's also, he gives a hint to the Philippians of something that was true of him. It's also a transformation of our models, of those we imitate. And so, he says in verses 17 to 19, and actually, he goes on to speak about this by way of contrast in the verses that follow when he speaks about those who walk as enemies of the cross. He says, when you're in Christ, your models change. Those you imitate change. Not those who are enemies of the cross of Christ but keep your eyes on those who walk according to this pattern. Remember how at the beginning of the chapter he said three times, watch out, watch out, watch out. Watch out for these people. They'll destroy the gospel. But now he's saying, watch out for those whose lives express this model. And actually, he'd already he'd already hinted there were two of them they knew in chapter 2. Remember how he'd said, now, think about what Timothy's like. Think about what your minister, Epaphroditus, is like. Fix your eyes on people like that. And why do you fix your eyes on people like that? You fix your eyes on people like that because you see in them a likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you quietly pray, Lord, make me like that. Give me that. Take me there. And I am personally more and more convinced that Paul taught this because he himself had to learn it and had learned it. 
I woke up uh, on Friday night in the middle of the night with a thought I can't ever remember having before, although I may well have forgotten it at this age. I thought, how on earth did Luke, the author of the Acts of the Apostles, get the information in Acts chapters 6, 7, and 8, which describe the ministry, the life, the ministry, and the martyrdom of Stephen? And I don't think I'd ever thought this before, but it did strike me the most likely place for him to get that story was from his traveling companion, the Apostle Paul. It's actually hard to think of anyone else who could have told that whole story to him. It's always interested me that the Apostle Paul never once, if I'm right, never once mentions Stephen. I personally think it would probably have been too painful for him to mention Stephen because he had been so instrumental in the man's destruction. And I think I can understand that psychologically. But although he never mentions Stephen, it's very evident that Stephen's life, his ministry, the way, even the way Luke describes him, as I think we noted last week, the way Luke describes him is he describes him in such Christ-like ways. There was, there was just something about his countenance. Even, even in his dying moments, he prays a prayer so similar to the prayer of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, don't hold this against their charge. Where did Luke get that sense of the Christ-likeness of Stephen? I think it was because when he and Paul talked together, he had an increasing sense of the way in which the, the fingerprints of Stephen's ministry were all over Paul, and not least what we've just seen. He must have been, for Paul of Tarsus, the greatest illustration of this principle. I want to know Christ and his share in his sufferings, be like him in his death, share in his resurrection. My ambition is I am prepared to lose everything in order that I may be found in Christ. So he's not giving them a suggestion that he'd just made up. I think he'd realize that this is the way God works. He imprints his patterns in someone else, and we begin to see that the reason for that is actually we say, why did Stephen suffer so much? And the answer didn't lie in Stephen. I don't imagine Stephen ever said, Lord, why is this happening to me? Tell me about me. No, it seems so evident from the Acts of the Apostles that Stephen went through this apparent disaster and tragedy to bear the greatest fruit, one might say, of anyone then living in Jerusalem. So, yes, there's a transformation of our values and our ambition and our focus and our models. And then in verses 20 to 21, there's a transformation of our destiny. And what is that? He says, my citizenship is really in heaven, and from it we're awaiting a Savior who will transform our lowly body 
to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. There's a whole series of sermons in these words, but this one is coming very quickly to its conclusion because this is the segue to the second main point, which will take me just a minute. And that is not only the nature of this transformation that takes place in Christ, but to the essence of it. And I think we can sum up the essence of everything that Paul is saying, the essence of this transformation in one single word, Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. Paul is saying, at the end of the day, there is nothing of value in my life that doesn't actually serve this goal, God's goal, and my goal of becoming like Jesus Christ. Remember how he put it in Romans 8, 29, this is actually God's eternal purpose for your life. He predestined us, says Paul, to be conformed, refigured into the image of Christ, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. He's creating in us the family likeness of the Lord Jesus, and nothing else at the end of the day matters. Everything depends on that, and at the end of the day, nothing else matters. I say that for this reason the end of the day, nothing else in your life is going to have access to the presence of God but what is like the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing. Nothing you have done, none of your accomplishments, none of your brain power, nothing. Except what has been created in you that is like the Lord Jesus. There's nothing more humbling than that, is there? I mean, even as Christians, we strut about the world uh, as though we knew what we were doing, but we're babies, we're children, and this is the great work of God to transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I say that for two reasons. In, by way of application, The first is because I imagine, like you, I often forget it. I often forget it. I forget it in relation to others. Am I being Christ-like in relationship to you? Actually, since I preach, I sometimes forget it when I'm preaching. Do I sound unChrist-like in the way I preach, in my ambitions. It's the only thing that matters. And when it matters, it makes everything else matter. Christ-likeness transforms everything. It's the Father's purpose. And as we were reminded earlier on, it's the goal of the Spirit's ministry. He takes what belongs to Christ and He shows it to us. Why does He show it to us? Well, Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. 
He shows it to us because He wants us to, He wants to transform us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus without destroying the personalities that He's given us in our creation. It isn't that He's making us clones, He's making us family. You know what it's like in a family? I mean, how can these children all have emerged from the same womb and be so amazingly different, and yet all have the family likeness? And it's part of the beauty of authentic family life, isn't it? It's part of the beauty of church life, and this is why Paul is speaking about it here. It's all summed up in this one simple statement, Christ-likeness. It's what he finds in Christ. It's what he wants in Christ. It's what he's discovering in Christ. It's what he's going to be transformed into by Christ. He said there were two reasons, two applications. And the other is this, That's what this is for, isn't it? We don't have altar calls here like they do in some churches to say, come on now, come to the front or put your hand up if you're committing yourself afresh to Jesus, if your failures have been exposed and you want to embrace Him all over again. But when we've this, we don't need altar calls. We've got Jesus Himself by the Spirit through the hands of the elders bringing us these tokens of His affection for us, His dying love for us. And this is how we are to see it. We are we're to see it as an opportunity to say to the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I feel I am so unlike You. And He says, well, share my bread, share my wine eat and drink with me, and as you know my presence, as I draw you to myself, as you embrace me afresh, and everything else but this bread and this wine drops out your hands, and you, through these gifts, you embrace me, then I will lead you one more step towards Christ-likeness. And the beautiful thing, isn't this the case, friends? The beautiful thing is that He wants to do this for every single one of us. But then the strange thing is that He, at the same time, wants to do it for us all together. I wonder if you've ever had this experience. I've certainly had this experience. And There's a privilege in serving the Lord's Supper. There's a special privilege in doing it, but there's also a special privilege in receiving it. At the end, well, you may be the shyest person in the room, but there's something within that makes you want to go and embrace every single brother and sister you have in the room and see afresh in them the family likeness of Jesus Christ that He wants to create in you. And all of this, when we are found in Jesus Christ, that you may be lost. But here is the light shining 
the Spirit working through His Word and saying, fix your eyes on Him. Come to Him and be found in Him. So, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You again for Your Word. Thank You that we've been able to pray as we've sung together about coming to You to receive the food of Your Holy Word. Now, as we begin to think of coming to You to receive the food of the bread and the wine and to a fellowship with the Lord Jesus in this way, we pray that He would meet with us and make us more like Himself. We ask it in His name. Amen.